have something really major to tell you. I'm listening. There has been one top Vera in my life since ninth grade, and now I have another one. Okay, who's that? So we apparently threw out a challenge into the world, and we said, someone please recreate Rebecca Black's Friday, but make it in line with the Rebecca Rubin books and the Rebecca Rubin world. And Avera did just that. Oh my god. Okay, let's not even waste any time. Let's hear some. work real early gotta be fresh gotta go right home gotta clean my house gotta make challah seeing everything the time is going ticking on and on everybody's rushing gotta get down to the synagogue gotta catch my service i see my friends there's an open left seat there's an open right seat gotta make my mind up which seat can i take it's Friday, Friday, gotta get the shul on Friday. Everybody's looking forward to their Shabbos, Shabbos. Friday, Friday, sitting down on Friday. Everybody's looking forward to their Shabbos. Davin and Davin and Davin and Davin and fun, 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 fun. Looking forward to their Shabbos. Welcome, everyone, to American Girls. This is the podcast where we're reliving the American Girls series book by book. I'm Mary. I'm still Allison. We're huge fans now of your musical parodyist, um, amazing artist. But, you know, other Vera, Vera Bradley, how many Vera Bradley products do you estimate that you own? So I do have to get rid of them sometimes eventually, but I am currently using four on a regular basis. Wow. Okay. That's, I guess that's like a, that's like a normal number, I guess. I don't know. I don't really know Vera. I think it's what the kids would call chuggy, but I feel like Vera (laughs) would support us because she supported us in this Rebecca Black challenge. I did not think anyone could improve upon my love for that song. And then she did it. Wow. I mean, yeah, she did. I mean, here's the thing. I really respect people who can do, like, in the spirit of Weird Al, like, take a parody to a place. It takes a lot of, you know, hard work, thinking, wit. And, you know, my hat's off to people who can do that because that's not my skill set, but I really do appreciate it. And, you know, just anyone who's out there preaching the gospel of Rebecca Black or, you know, the sacred text of Rebecca Black is is a friend of the show for life. And I encourage you, you know, Vera in her full version made some really interesting audiovisual content as well. And it talks about the importance of rest, which I think is really wonderful. And just oh, yeah. thank you so much to everyone who listens. And I recall way back when we inspired someone in the Josefina and then the Kirsten era to write music. And we said, like, you know, great patrons of the past thousand years, you know, inspired some of the world's most famous artists. This is what we inspire. I mean, I'll take it. I love it. I'll take it. And on that note of songwriters, it does just occur to me that a major event took place in the past week, Allison, and I oh. just need to pay homage um, to someone who never gets her due, friend of the show. She doesn't know we exist, and that's fine. But Mariah Carey was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame this week. 
was she? She was. And this is actually a huge accomplishment, as she noted in her speech, which I encourage everyone to go watch. It's loopy and insane, but also very smart, which is very on brand for her. Um, At one point, she acts out a famous meme of her where somebody cut together her saying, as a songwriter, as a songwriter. Myself as, you know, a singer, a songwriter. As a songwriter. As a songwriter. As a songwriter and a singer. And like making fun of her. And she literally pulls off her sunglasses, puts them on indoors at the podium. And she's like, so hopefully another meme as a songwriter. And everyone's like, yeah. And it's like, yes, give, put respect on her name. And she's only like the 23rd woman all time to be inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. So a lot of big wins for her. And, you know, in the era of Nick Cannon's life that we're in, you know, happy Father's Day, post Father's Day, like she has stopped speaking about him. And I respect that. But, you know, she's, this is a big week for her. And I just, I just wanted to note that, you know, Vera, someday I'll be attending your acceptance, your, perhaps your induction ceremony at the Songwriters Hall of Fame. But, you know, congrats, other Mimi, you know, thinking about you. I feel like there is nothing cringier than a certain kind of like historian here tweet. So I'll totally accept Mariah Carey doing that because she is an actual songwriter who has found success as opposed to someone saying like, historian here, no one asked me to weigh in on this, you know, molasses crisis of 200 years ago, but here I am. And it's like, no, certainly no one did. No No one one asked. You answered. And look, I mean, in many ways, that's the premise of our show. Like nobody asked us to do this and here we are. So I do respect people like, you know, taking up space or like choosing their moments. That's fine. But some of that's a little bit, I'm not here for the ego flex, I guess, of that or the presumed ego flex or the condescension, because I think, you know, anyone can be a historian, including Mariah Carey, whose book we read for Patreon and, you know, still inspires me to this day, even though it has very little to do with my own life experience. So... You know, Allison, like, what's new with you? What's going on? Like, what are you taking in? What's happening? So Had My World Rocked by Candlelight for Rebecca, which is coming up. It's the surprise book that we'll be talking about today. Sure. I'm very deep into the new season of 90 Day Fiancé. You know, very interesting, very compelling to me. Following a lot of different sagas on TikTok that continue to evolve. But, you know, mostly just trying to get a lot of my summer reading in, trying to get some new books. Um, my Ocean State job lot, which is one of my happy places, was doing a three for $10 sale. Also been finding some very good books at dollar and a quarter tree. So, you know, I always appreciate that. What? Love a bargain. <laughs> um, so I will not call it Dollar Tree because it's a misnomer. So there's that, you know, I like to be precise, like our friend, you know, who wrote us an entire song again. Thank you so much. What, what are you watching? I'm kind of like all over the place right now. You might say my life is, you know, in in chaos, but maybe not. And I'm, I'm rewatching all of Golden Girls, which is my own happy place. So that's, I'm like, I learned last night in an episode that Dorothy is a Leo. And I'm sitting with that news because I still identify as a Sophia, but, you know, a lot going on with that. I'm feeling my way through that. But the thing that's currently rocking my world was something I had the chance to do this weekend, and that's go to Windsor, Connecticut, which Mm. calls itself the oldest town in Connecticut. I will not acknowledge that as a resident, as a native of Weathershield. So anyway, I took myself to Windsor Historical Society, and they did a fundraiser. I don't know if other towns do this, where it's like pay us some amount of money and we will let you go through private historic homes mm. who volunteer to be a part of this process. And when I tell you, I went on a magical mystery tour on Saturday. It was absolutely crazy. And literally, I just pulled this oldest, this older woman to the side. And I'm like, listen, 
it's you and me right now. Here's the map. Where do where would you hit up? Because there was like 20 something houses. I had an hour left in this window. And she's like, posts on the map. She's like, go to this lady's house. And then she puts in air quotes, she's an artist. And she was like, <laughs> it's the newest house on the tour. So I'm like, okay, no questions asked. I get in my car, ride over there. It's like a suburban neighborhood. Doesn't look like, you know, a picture of the oldest part of your town if, in New England. Go inside. First of all, she's like, you will wear booties or you're not coming in this house. No one else required this, I should say. And she was like, I'm the youngest house on this tour. My house was built in 1960. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, strike one. I go in for, to the front door, go into the kitchen. Interesting, no foyer, right into the kitchen. I see an elderly man on a stool eating a hot dog, no bun. I'm like, okay, <laughs> red flag, 911, do I feel safe? It's also like so dark in there. It's almost like nighttime. This was a house built in 1960 to look like it was built in the 1600s. Hmm. Like there was the teeny windows, et cetera, et cetera. And she, her artistic practice is doing 2D portraits in New England style of like children. They're everywhere. I'm seeing her collectibles. I'm in so deep with this woman. I'm like, where's the sailboat from? She's like telling me about her trip to London 30 years ago. Like, we're palling around. She painted her door to look like another door that was open with a cat coming out. Nice. She did the effects on her floor, wood floors, to make it look like granite or marble. You know how that effects they do too in the 1600s where it was like they painted wood to look like canvas. She did that in another room. Like every surface was painted. I was just like, this is absolutely wild. And then I went to a how, private home that wasn't in 100 years ago, built by a wallpaper business tycoon. Oh. It was a lot. And I heard the man say who owns it now, somebody was like, did the previous owner come back to see everything you've done? Because, of course, he's totally redone it. It's going to be on Airbnb soon. It's beautiful. And the guy was like, he did come to get something from the garden. And he came in through the kitchen and... He just started, he burst into tears and he was like, I can't go any further. You changed too much. And I was like, oh my God, I love the high drama of this event. Like I'm getting into all the personal narratives. It was really, it was wild, but it was very fun. So I hope they did raise a lot of money, I hope. And I hope they do it again. And, you know, if anyone's around next time, I will take other people with me because I didn't know what this event was going to be. Anna and I basically just like, you know, Anna scouted it. We went. But it was very fun. So, I mean, that's almost, I, that's not more fun than the Golden Girls. Nothing could no. be, but that's currently what's rocking my world. And I did get to see Sue Bird, my favorite all-time basketball player, play on Saturday oh. night. And that was good. She just announced her retirement the day before. Very emotional. Um, you know, anyway. So, that's what's going on in my life these days. I love it. I feel like that's also very sort of, um, that's like a very holiday type thing. So where Mm -hmm. I live, they tend to do those kind of around the holidays. And I feel like our friend RR, like she'd be down. My God, no question. I would take her with me because I think she would have no problem going on her own self-guided tour, especially when they're like roping off the stairs. They're like nobody upstairs on this tour. And she's like, okay, but what if I told you how to feed the pigeons? Yeah, she'd put a foot in the way and say, oh, sorry, did did I catch you off guard there? Excuse me? She'd what? put one of her, like, new shoes from Papa's store. We're talking about Rebecca Rubin, obviously. We hope people know that. Also, her sisters are there, and they're, like, hiding jingle bells in their hair. Yes. And they're like, LOL, this is, like, a fun trend. <laughs> We're starting. Yes, I'm with that. It's, like, without further ado, like, I, we have a lot of things to get into with this book, so I feel like we should just dive right in. We absolutely should. 
So we are talking about Jacqueline Dunbar Green's Candlelight for Rebecca, which came out in the summer of 2009, as we previously discussed, a very different time in our lives and Jacqueline's, I presume. So we will go through the quick kind of review and then get right into the fantastic plot points. Rebecca's teacher assigns the class to make Christmas decorations, but Rebecca's family is Jewish and doesn't celebrate Christmas. Her teacher tells her that Christmas is a national holiday for all Americans to celebrate. Although her parents came from Russia, Rebecca knows she's as American as anyone else, even without celebrating Christmas. Could her teacher be wrong? If Rebecca does the project, her family is sure to be upset. If she doesn't, her teacher will be displeased. Then, on the first night of Hanukkah, Rebecca finds kindness in an unexpected place and learns the real meaning of the holiday season. That summary wasn't bad. I mean, sometimes it's way off base, but that kind of covered it. Yeah, I mean, it's leaving out one of the stars of this book, which is a pigeon, which was kind of like unexpected. You don't really see it coming. But I like that this book didn't do sort of a simplistic O. Henry narrative that I think would have taken us a bit off course. But we learned from our first kind of foray into Jacqueline Dunbar Green's backstory that this is actually based on something that really happened to her as a child. That she was asked to make a Christmas decoration in school and had to go through this kind of crisis of conscience because it's not her culture and she doesn't want to do it. You know, I mean, it's a very relatable thing. Or I mean, I think you can kind of easily imagine yourself into Rebecca's head feeling the stress of this. And I think this is a really smart plot line, too, for this book, because the other two books have done such a good job of establishing kind of like the desire to assimilate and hold yourself apart simultaneously that her family feels as like firmly steeped in Jewish culture and being immigrants and you know so this plot or this story of the crisis of like wanting to assimilate or like be part of the culture of the united states but also wanting to hold your family's culture you know apart and special and keep it special and unique you know that's a real crisis that you can imagine for her yeah and i think when we've talked about other books and the ways that sometimes american girl tries to fit characters into a specific mold right to kind of move through an arc we've talked in other contexts about how like the holiday story didn't exactly fit and Mm. i think this is the closest thing that we have a have to a meta commentary on that where it's sort of like you know the author has been asked to do a kind of surprise or holiday story and instead of just forcing it into a christian framework it's actually kind of a commentary on that christian framework that rebecca is being told something that's objectively true on the one hand that christmas is a federal holiday in the united states and she's also living this reality that christmas doesn't really mean anything to her personally so I think in the same way that the second book kind of made you think about patriotism as opposed to just telling you what to think about patriotism, we have Rebecca kind of having these great conversations with people of saying, well, it's not a one-to-one. It's not like I do Hanukkah and you do Christmas and we're comparing peanut butter and jelly. We're talking about two fundamentally different ways to practice our faith and they don't exactly line up. And there's so many moments in this book where adults and people around her just have these interesting conversations about that and Rebecca kind of takes some of it in and then kind of makes up her own mind. Yeah and I think there's also like a third way to or like a third kind of identity crisis happening where it's like it's not just you know we're Jewish in an American country or like we're not celebrating Christmas or people who celebrate Christmas people who celebrate Hanukkah 
Then I think there's a third identity, which is like, what is Hanukkah to European Jews Mm. versus what is Hanukkah to American Jews? And I so I think that there's an interesting kind of story here about the ways that not only has Christmas and we'll get into this, but the celebration of Christmas in the United States, we're only like maybe 50, not even years into it being even like a postal holiday, like Christmas itself. And Hanukkah's on a similar trajectory. Like there's, I was reading some stuff in preparation for today about um, how Christmas culture gets so prominent where, you know, it. I think what's interesting is this is picking up a thread that she very wisely put in the last book. So we have the Pledge of Allegiance in the last book and you're a grand old flag. And we have this like invitation, as you said, to think about patriotism. And I was looking up for the last book, like, when does the phrase under God go into the Pledge of Allegiance? And it's not until the 40s, I believe. And then it's like Mm -hmm. universally adopted in like 51 or something like that. So that's not in there. So it's like already we've been invited to think about something that kind of blurs the line between church and state. Now this book really truly comes in and is like, okay, but what's the difference or the line between church and state in a schoolroom, you know, on Christmas? Can your teacher ask you to make a Christmas decoration? And, you know, I I don't know. I just think this book is so smart in the way that it's that she chooses this anecdote that, as you said, has a personal relevance for her, but it allows her to do such really rich and interesting things. So I guess we can kind of get into it from the beginning, which is like somebody says on page eight, when did Christmas become a national holiday? And that's actually a complicated question. I was like, thank you for asking this, whoever said that, because I don't even know the answer to that. And so that's why I was kind of getting into like, well, when does this become a holiday in various like state governments, federal government, whatever. And um, it's not until 1870 it becomes a postal holiday and a work holiday in some areas. So like not for all jobs, obviously. So that's like within, you know, her parents' lifetime or grandparents' lifetime. So it's not like this is like everyone just accepts that this is how it is. No, and it makes sense that it happens with President Grant because a lot of it is actually tied into like civil service reform and kind Mm -hmm. of standardizing what federal employees can expect to receive or like treatment of different kinds of special days. And the exposition in this book is just really excellent because I think in the hands of someone else, if you were to be reading some of these sentences, it would feel kind of like ringing a false note. But because Rebecca is so earnest and so curious, you're kind of willing to go along with her where it's like, so when did this become a national holiday? Right, exactly. I love that she is both sort of, she admires Miss Maloney. I think she admires that she's an educated woman and Rebecca loves her education and really cares about it, but she's willing to ask questions. And it's fascinating that they have the students making something that on its face is secular, right? That it could be interpreted as secular, but Miss Maloney keeps reminding them like, no, 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 it's a Christmas decoration. Like, Mm -hmm. don't be confused. It's a Christmas decoration. And I was reading different manuals and curricula from what would have been her training, right? Like the era of when she was learning how to become a teacher. And the messaging she would have received is that you need to make sure you do something where no one feels left out, where no Mm. one feels poor relative to other students. Mm. And so her whole kind of driving home that this is a gift that's not costing them anything, that it's something everyone gets to do. 
that was in line with her training, which is make everyone feel like they can participate. And Mm. then Rebecca is so excellently pushing back against that and saying, but I don't even want this. Right. Like, this doesn't make me feel included. And it's interesting that that's the context is that, like, when they're trained teachers in this period, they're being told to think about the privilege of, like, like class as a a potential, um, like, platform for difference. So it's like everyone gets to, you know, everyone gets to participate. That's the thing that she's so focused on. Because you can kind of see her hinting at that because when they get into the classroom, she has them all doing calisthenics, not for exercise. And we talked about like eugenics mm-hmm. last episode, but because it's so freezing in the classroom and it's like the radiators are humming, but are is any is like, is any heat coming out? Everyone's freezing. And, you know, so it kind of does situate you to think, oh, wow, even like the school has no money. Like this, this is a fraud situation. She tells them she got permission to collect pine bows from central park which it's like wow that's interesting i wonder like what rigmarole she went through to do that but she's doing in her mind the most and i think you know in a way that maybe we haven't really felt since we were in the classroom with kirsten or with Addie. we have students who are like having these different reactions and kind of whispering to each other and i love kind of being in rebecca's world because she's not quick to judgment she actually really does kind of try to process Honestly, I think one of the funnier lines we've encountered in a while comes on the first page. Um, we do seem to have dropped Anna. I'm not really sure, like, kind of yeah. what's going on Yeah, I'm putting out an APB for her. <laughs> She's not even in the beginning. When I when I opened the portraits and she dropped out and we got Mr. Rossi instead, I was like, ruh this is bad. And Rose is in the mix now. Yeah, we kind of jump <sighs> right into, because I do think Anna might have had a different reaction to this if we were still kind of, like, focused on her. So we learn that Rebecca and her friend Rose Krensky, um, it's really cold, right? Like we're immediately situated in a season. And Rose says, I have goosebumps. Rebecca giggled. You mix up two words, but I like it. And I think that this kind of word moment is a perfect encapsulation of who Rebecca is with her friends and with her family, where she doesn't chastise Rose. She's sort of like, all right, you, you kind of, you said something sort of different and I liked it. She is so sort of like supportive of other people in her life, but she also is not going to like ignore that that's not the word, right? We saw this with Anna where she was trying to tell her how to say things so that she could sing with her, but also like extremely supportive of her in the same time. Rose is hilarious. Rose is the standout of the book. And I like that they have this kind of tension between them of how they deal with this same situation quite differently. Like Rose saying that she's going to participate in the craft only to immediately throw it away was hilarious to me. That was wild. I mean, that's such a like a kid thing to do, or I guess like you could understand how the stress of confronting that at home must have put real pressure on her. So it's funny, but it's also kind of sad that she felt like there was no space for her to bring that home physically, like maybe to put it, but also to have the conversation that it wouldn't go well, would be upsetting to her family. And I think that also explains too, and in part why Anna drops out of this book. And when we mean she drops out, like she is not in this book. Never, no. Never once. And which is amazing because we go from like, you're going to be like my twin and we're we're wearing the twins hand-me-downs and like, you're like my sister. And then it's like, goodbye. Like they must have moved out. That's off our plate. Like we we don't see her. But I was reading about how um, Christmas and the celebration of Christmas 
in terms of like stores getting decorated and all this stuff really amps up after the Civil War because people project that it could be a holiday of reunion, Mm. which is sort of interesting because we just celebrated Juneteenth, which is, you know, a really excellent addition to national holiday schedules, although not everyone gets that off of work yet. Um, But thinking about like how we kind of signal through memorialization or commemoration, like the outcome of the Civil War, the reckoning of it, and like seeing Christmas as an outgrowth of the Civil War or like the really leaning into like public decorations and displays. But then also seeing Hanukkah also amped up by American Jews as a response to that. So like Christmas is getting more popularly celebrated Mm -hmm. and Jews in the United States are like amping up the celebration of Hanukkah as also like a gift giving holiday around the same time period. And I read this really interesting article that we can link to, um, which quotes a scholar named Jonathan Sarna. Um, And so he kind of makes the point, and I'll just like read this. This is an article from Brandeis' site on the Americanization of Hanukkah. And it says, the message of Hanukkah is one of anti-assimilation. It's rooted in the story of how the Maccabees steadfastly refused to follow in the ways of their neighbors and surrender their distinctiveness. I believe the relationship of Hanukkah and Christmas mirrors the relationship of Judaism and Christianity within the larger culture. Jews want to be part of the larger culture and simultaneously want to stand apart from it. They seek to be different, but also to be accepted as equal. And I think what's interesting is like, I think Hanukkah for Anna coming from Russia would feel different than perhaps what she saw her own family celebrating in New York. And I kind of wish we could have seen her be part of this conversation like what would her reaction be as opposed to say like the christian classmates or rose i also think we're seeing a difference or like kind of an evolution in the brand thinking about how in the early to mid 1990s as there started to be more and more holiday content that was meant to be contemporary for girls and for young people to buy the way that American Girl released Kwanzaa outfits, right, for Mm. like dolls to wear. And they released a whole kind of Hanukkah set for dolls to wear. I think there is something that's actually distinct and different about that being an offering for people to purchase for dolls and for their collections. And the way that Rebecca invites you into a deeper level of understanding about the history of Hanukkah, right? I think the brand initially was kind of offering sort of um, very much in line with like the education I received in elementary school, which was in one week, we learned about Kwanzaa, Christmas, and Hanukkah all together. And we did Mm -hmm. a craft for each, but we really didn't learn anything deeper other than like about some object that was associated with it and we made dreidels in elementary school we Mm -hmm. never really talked about obviously anything theologically or anything deeper i think what's happening here is like rebecca provides an opportunity to get that other level right to actually see through the peak into the past the way that rebecca's experience of hanukkah is not a universal right in the same Mm -hmm. way that even kirsten's holiday celebration is different from other christians that this is actually something really specific happening to her that her family is kind of talking about with her in real time in the way that even within her own family she's called to participate at a higher level which we know that she's been wanting like there's more stuff that she gets to do again kind of taking it back to those human universals of like wanting to feel included and involved we've known since basically page one of book one rebecca wants to feel appreciated and rebecca wants to feel active in family rituals and we learn through candlelight for rebecca she is going to get opportunities 
through the Hanukkah holiday and the way her family celebrates to feel more included. I thought that was like a really cool arc that we've kind of been going on with her since literally page one. Yeah, I think it's really nice to see. Basically, she wants to be accepted. She wants to be acknowledged as someone who's not an adult, but kind of maturing. She's someone who Mm. can perform responsibility. She's a meaningful member. Like she's a valued member of the family, which is why she wanted to light the candles in book one and have more responsibility. And there's a joke early on that's like, well, of course you can light candles during Hanukkah, but like so can Benny or like the youngest brother. And so even that, it's like, okay, you're getting the thing you wanted in book one, but that's already been kind of diminished by the twins. Again, the most chaotic group in the family. (laughs) But then the twins immediately offer her, invite her into their secret, which is that they are huddled in their bedroom making gifts for everyone on Hanukkah because they explain the kids all get gifts on Hanukkah, um, you know, as a ritual. But this year they're making gifts for all the adults as well as a surprise. So then she gets to be part of this secret world. And you can just see the delight that she has in that. And my favorite line of this book is actually when she finds out what they're doing. And on page 21, she says, she's like, tell me what you're doing. And they're like, nope, it's a secret. And it's like, here we go again. They're like keeping her at arm's length. And she says, quote, I don't care if you tell me or not. I have secrets of my own. I know. And she doesn't. Well, she actually kind of does. I love the conversation the family has around the table. And again, I think that this book is just really brilliant at kind of pulling you into what feels like an authentic and intimate family experience where Rebecca kind of throws ideas out there and gets very different responses from family. Um, And Grandpa says, Christmas is a Christian holiday. We are Jewish, so we don't celebrate it no matter how American we are. And I like the way that Rebecca is kind of like processing. Rebecca was silent. If Grandpa learned of the school project, he would be as upset as Booby. And I think that this is like a really helpful kind of thing for like a younger person to read, which is like you can hear different adults have a conversation and you can process different ideas that they're putting out in front of you, but it also matters what you're making of it. And I Mm -hmm. like that over the course of this book, Rebecca does do the craft because she feels pressure to in the classroom. But at the end of the day, Rebecca is able to kind of be open with her grandmother, whose approval she's looking for the most, and able to have this conversation with her, and then kind of find a way to, like, make that gift meaningful in a way that doesn't feel as though she's sacrificing her own values. I thought that was, like, a really smart way to pull us through this. Um, Obviously, Rose takes a different tack and just, like, is not bringing it into the household. Rebecca has this genuine conflict, and I didn't feel as if it was dragged out. I felt as if over the course of the 70 pages, I didn't know how she was going to resolve this. And I was really curious to kind of like get there with her. We also find out that Rebecca has an obsession with Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm, which I did also at one point. And I love, love that that is a book that allows her to spark a conversation with her grandfather about courage because that was so completely unexpected to me. And again, that just felt like a wonderful moment of like the most random things can end up serving as a bridge between you and a family member. Like I did not see that coming and I thought it was awesome. Yeah, I thought that was really great as well. And I had to look up the plot of that book because I completely forgot what that was. And the book doesn't really give you the plot except saying like she goes to live with her two aunts and she kind of makes the best of a situation by literally renaming her family's impoverished farm Sunnybrook Farm to kind of like put a better face on it. 
And then that leads Rebecca to iconically decide to name her own house Pigeon Cove for reasons mm-hmm. we'll get to. But I was like, wow, is this something that we're all just invited to do in our lives? Like if you want to name your apartment, like how do, is it just rich people who get to name their houses, some estate, or is it like anybody gets to do this? I think now anybody can do it. I mean, I think it's just a matter of like having the right moment come up. Like Rebecca is such a wonderful character because her inner life is so exciting to her, right? Like she basically is being asked or impressed upon to like help an older neighbor who is self-described as grouchy, uh, basically with a task that sounds like a little bit sort of gross and challenging, which is like feeding a bunch of animals. And these animals are not like top on this man's list and he's also not doing well, but you know, the animal has had kittens and this is kind of like passed by his attention. She turns this into kind of an exciting adventure for herself and as something that she can really lean into. The way that she gets so excited about the pigeons possibly being sort of like agents of mystery. She is a woman, like a young person, I should say, who has these like complicated struggles right like americanization the fact that she has to like jump up and down to stay warm in her classroom which is supposed to be like the greatest country in the world and then she comes home and she has animals to feed which was definitely me when i was this age not always really wanting to do it and like the excitement of kittens she has this whole world on the lower east side that you feel welcomed into right like you're kind of Mm -hmm. like wait what's going to happen next pigeons are we going to the store what are the secret presents what is she going to do with the christmas decoration like can miss maloney be trusted no probably not but i mean to get to bring us back to (laughs) mr rossi owner of pasta the cat who then has kittens (laughs) and the pigeons i allison i got like really deep into pigeons for this episode yeah kind of for no reason but it does lead me to a point so just bear with me for a second i had to look up So the pigeons are on the roof. We've seen them before. She's gotten yelled at because he thought she was going to do something like wrong to the pigeons or like mess up their care. But then suddenly this guy's taken out by a cold and seemingly like he's every man with a cold where it's like, are you dying? Is this a cold? (laughs) Like what's happening? And he's like, oh my God, like I can't possibly. And she's like, I will take care of these pigeons. Like they're my own. And he's like so rude to her. And he's like, I thought all kids were lazy when she actually shows up to get the food. He's like, I thought all kids these days were lazy. And it's like, oh my God, this is too much. And she dutifully does all of it. And as you say, this is a thankless task. This girl is like going oh, yeah. up to the roof. She has to clean out every one of their little bowls before she adds more food. We're trying to get eyes on Pasta the Cat, which is easier than getting eyes on Anna in this book. And basically, she's dutifully doing all of this. He's kind of being a crank to her the whole time. And add to this that the mom also is sending him soup. And then Bubby sends soup. Like, everyone's being really nice to this man. And he's just kind of grouchy. And you're like, what is going on? Quick sidebar. So then I'm like, why? So there's a pigeon that arrives with a message tied or like in on a tube around its leg and i'm like oh my god we're in carrier pigeon territory this is a lot allison like did you ever know anything about carrier pigeon life i listened to a very in-depth podcast about pigeons and i think as part of like fate intervening i saw a viral tweet this week that said you know we domesticated pigeons and then abandoned them whoa that's like that's deep 
Honestly, they're on the same trajectory as pasta. I mean, they're in the wind, literally. Nobody knows where they are. Nobody knows where they're coming <laughs> or going. And it comes to find out that, like, so this message is, arrives, and then Rebecca has such, you know, morals or whatever that she's like, I'm not going to read this message. I'm just going to deliver it to Mr. Rossi. Wouldn't you have read that message? So part of what I liked the way that that was handled, first of all, yes. Second of all, I liked the way that was handled because... Rebecca immediately goes to a high level of intrigue and it's like, is he an agent of the war? Well, Sadie says that. Sadie's like, do you think this is about the war? And it's like, wow, oh my God, you guys go right from zero to 10. Then I was like, wait a (laughs) second, is this about the war? Are we covering that too in these books? Kept me wondering, kept me turning the pages. I genuinely was like, well, what if this is about the war? But I like got weirdly into it. I have not listened to a podcast episode about this, but I didn't realize (laughs) that you know, it's probably for the best that I didn't, that routers actually began as a carrier pigeon agency, like sending messages through carrier pigeons. And then they got a telegraph line and that was it for the pigeons, which is sort of the story of carrier pigeons, except for like these, you know, hobbyists like Mr. Rossi. But in history, did you know that the first Olympians all brought a carrier pigeon with them that would fly home to tell their town if they won their event. And if not, I guess it was just going to hang with them at the Olympics. I did not, but it makes Twitter make more sense. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. So stay with me. I'm building something here. Yes. I have a theory for you. I feel like the pigeons and Mr. Rossi, like this whole plot line, there's something going on where she's pulling from somewhere. And it could be history. It could be pop culture. I have two different theories. In 1981, the New York Times did an article called Pigeon Lady, in which a woman every day was caring for pigeons in the park, and she would collect money for food. You could take her picture if you would give her a quarter to buy bird food. Fine. A man is interviewed in the park who watches her, and he says, I think she has a title or something from Europe. Um, said the man. Um, She has a pin. She wears it on her coat all the time. I asked her where it was. She says it was a title. That's what she told me. Who else did we meet, Allison, in the Rebecca books, who has been gifted a pin who could theoretically still be alive in 1981? I don't know. Mr. Rock, no. Rebecca, in book one, this girl got Bubby's pin. Oh, that's right. That's right. Stay with me. Okay. In 1990, a film comes out called Home Alone. Home Alone. A central plot line to this movie is that a young child befriends a pigeon person, pigeon lady in this case, and she basically is like, yeah, I don't know, I had this whole life, but I thought this guy didn't love me, so then Mm -hmm. I, like, gave up, and I'm caring for these pigeons in the park. I haven't got many friends. Oh, sorry. I'm like the birds I care for. People pass me in the street. They see me, but they try to ignore me. They prefer I wasn't part of their city. But then at the end of the book, it's like he teaches her something. She teaches him something. And then he shares a gift with her of a turtle dove ornaments. And I'm like, oh, my God, is this not an inversion of what happens in this book? I think it's highly possible. I also feel like within a few years, Rebecca is going to have to take over everything for Mr. Rossi. What do you mean? Like all the carrier pigeons? See, to me, Mr. Rossi was the canary in the coal mine. Forgive the mixed like bird messaging for the flu pandemic. 
Oh my God. I was like, he's not long. Well, that's why I was like, why do you keep going to this man's door? He's like hacking. <laughs> like he's contagious and he shouldn't be requiring this. This is not okay. Like we're in a tenement. I'm sorry. Maybe it's because we just, just left uh, Mari Grace and Cecile, Cecile and we had all of like, you know, this is yeah. what came to mind. Like, you know, when Taylor Swift does that duet and it's like, I gave you so many signs and the man is like, there were no signs. This is what I'm feeling. Like, there are many wow. signs of illness. The signs are not being read. I'm nervous for her. I also love the moment where she finds out what her mother and family have been feeding him in terms of soup. And she's like, that explains the smells. That explains the smells. She's like, well, he's basically a pickle. Yeah, basically, yeah. Well, and also when she walks in, I was like, I would have thrown up. If I walked in a house and somebody was boiling vinegar yeah. to breathe in, I would be like, I'm out of here right now. He's like, no it's for do. gargling. I'm not just doing this for my own pleasure. I I like, though, also that Rebecca's world is not just populated with sort of, like, Muppet people, that there are mm-hmm. actual people who have, like, issues and baggage. For example, in the first book where we met the kind of, like, snobbier mother, right, and her son who ended up having to wear the dunce cap in this book, we meet this older man who's kind of struggling I appreciate that we kind of aren't getting like an overly sunny portrait of what life would have been like in this building. Like this man is frustrated with her, right? Because he's just like frustrated with children generally. And if you think about the close quarters that they'd be living in, like he doesn't feel well and he probably hears children moving about all the time. Plus pasta is MIA. I did feel as though like pasta was meant to signal to us that he would be celebrating christmas they were like one plus one equals two mr rossi is italian that's where we're going with this what wait because pasta the cat is named pasta yeah okay because that's where we end up with this book like we end up with her like recognizing that she can do something for him right even though she doesn't celebrate christmas right um like she is not amazingly curious about like anything more about his life but then she starts to put some pieces together and realizes like hey mr rossi probably has a family he probably has people he cares about like where are these pigeons going to and it leads her kind of down this rabbit hole but i did feel like pasta was meant to be a signal to us of like this is a man who celebrates with fishes in december not candles that's probably true yeah yeah well and also that it's like he he is not going to accommodate or kind of like go for a hybrid holiday and she's not either like Mm. I thought it was interesting that the book didn't end with an invitation for him to join them I mean obviously he's sick and that would have been gross but like you know he's a walking like who knows what pathogen for whatever he actually has the flu epidemic or something else but you know I think it's interesting that sometimes books about holidays always end with a resolution in the form of reunion where it's like oh well you come to my house like little women they go to the poor family who are all sick and like obviously the hummels like beth lives not long to tell about that but this this avoids that resolution and in fact is like nope we're all doing our own we're honoring our own cultures here but we're going to extend you some kindness to make your celebration which seems to be more limited this year more comfortable like we are in community with you but you don't have to come into our like sacred space and like we don't have to come into yours and i thought that the insistence on not ending in reunion was actually really smart 
and it made sense. But it was also like one of my favorite things about this book was the ways that she in very subtle ways hints at the generational differences Mm. between how all of them adjust to being Jewish in America and whether or not like they're going to not assimilate necessarily and not pass, but sort of take on the trappings of like the Christmas occasion of society that happens between November and December. Like at one point, somebody's like, well, dad, you put like, you know, greenery on the door of your store. And he looks like sheepishly to Bubby and is like, oh, I just like make it look seasonal, like all yeah. the other stores. And Bubby's like probably like glaring daggers at him. And then, of course, the twins show up with jingle bells in their hair because that's a fad at school. And they seem like really down for celebrating kind of whatever. Um, you get this sense that like they might have reacted differently to the craft situation than Rebecca would have, or like that was my take on them. But it was nice to kind of see like variation or just that like this is worth something for them to discuss. It's not like they're just having this conversation for our benefit as the audience of this book. Like they're genuinely negotiating all of this together and have different contexts and hot takes and experiences. Also has a very different kind of messaging around gift giving at the holidays, right? Like obviously we've seen through Samantha and other characters, there's different messages that American Girl tries to put out there, some of which are, you know, homemade gifts are wonderful, or like store-bought gifts are wonderful. Dolls are always Mm. sort of wonderful. We know that Rebecca has a relationship with dolls because the series literally opens with her playing with dolls and this kind of like imagining that she has with it. In this book, like the gift that she is really most grateful to receive is the mending of a dress that makes her feel included and this kind of surprise from her sisters and also eventually being let in on the sister's surprise for the whole family, which Mm. is giving everyone a gift and making everyone feel kind of included. But we have this wonderful moment that, again, I think is probably only most closely paralleled with Kirsten and not just because of the candles, but the kind of moment where Kirsten really feels like she has a place in her family and she can do something that genuinely delights other people in her family. Rebecca really getting to have this kind of moment with the candlelight is something that we've been waiting for, but we've also been waiting for those family members to really kind of pull her in. And she has this extremely special moment uh, with Bubby where they're able to actually connect over and talk about what she had to do as a student. And I love the moment where the grandmother sees that she's concerned and basically tries to comfort her and says, you know, we did a wonderful job, right? Like you made something that's really special and maybe it isn't exactly, you know, what they would have chosen, but she understands that Rebecca didn't really have a choice in making it. Like, I think that could have been handled many different ways and I wasn't exactly expecting a reprimand, but it wouldn't have been shocking given how they'd reacted to other things for there to be upset at the teacher. But instead, she's kind of being given a lesson in like, well, you had to navigate this hard situation in a school that wasn't really designed for you and you handled it well. Yeah, I thought it was nice that Bubby had a kind response, although I kind of wish that she had kind of set Rebecca up to expect that because it seemed like Rebecca put so much pressure on herself or was so afraid She literally hid it coming into the house under her coat. And then her brother's like, what's that? And that's how it's revealed. But, (laughs) you know, so because it's kind of like, in a way, like Bubby and Grandpa are the furthest removed from the world. They don't have to negotiate these moments where your, you know, actual culture and belief are at odds with this popular celebration. And you don't want to sometimes signal your difference. It's just 
for safety and for other reasons easier to kind of hide in plain sight although that certainly should never be the expectation but i think like it's it's easier to say like don't sing jingle bells if you're not in a classroom where everyone else is singing jingle bells and you just kind of want to like go along to get along although you shouldn't have to do that so i just feel like her reactions were harsh earlier in the book not at rebecca or the twins or even the dad decorating his store but at the culture that would pressure people to do that And I think that that distinction was lost in that Rebecca internalized it so much like she'll be mad at me when actually like Bubby is mad at the culture. So I think that moment was really powerful, but I did feel bad for her that like she carried so much weight of like what felt like shame coming into that moment. And realistically, I think kind of what it shows, because I was like reading different manuals about teaching and education in that time period. And The year that Rebecca is in school is the year following a major landmark report about all of the ways that New York City schools are underfunded, all of these different issues that are coming out. And within the next few years, there's going to be this massive boom and investment in making more teachers, right, through teachers' colleges and all these kinds of things. But she's kind of going to school in this liminal moment where a lot of other people her age aren't going to school for a whole variety of reasons. But it's very clear that this is important to Rebecca's family that she get that education. There really is almost no one who can actually prepare Rebecca and talk her through what it's like to be in this half generation and this really difficult um, kind of situation of like how much to assimilate and when. Even her older sisters, just being a few years older, her younger siblings, everyone else in the family, they haven't had this exact experience as her. Mm. And she's looking to friends to figure out how to navigate it. And what's really sharp about this book is when her friend handles it differently than how she thinks she wants to, she still kind of sticks to her own gut and figures it out, right? Like seeing that her friend has actually destroyed the craft and thrown it away on the street bothers Rebecca and makes her feel bad. And she feels this conflict and picks that thing up. And remember, her teacher has probably messaged to her in all of these kinds of ways, like this is a great gift. And she doesn't know how to reconcile these two completely different ideas and I love that it ends with kind of um, a happier ending of her being able to give something special to a neighbor who doesn't really have anyone right as much as Rebecca experiences all of this intra-family conflict it kind of gives you the adult reader a moment to say but imagine like all of this assimilation conflict and feeling alone and feeling Mm -hmm. like family just on the other side of the river are too far for you to even access. That, you know, after traveling halfway across the world to start your life over, New Jersey and New York is like too big a bridge to divide. That was a cool ending that I kind of wasn't expecting that she sees this whole other side, right? Like even if you do come over with your family, I mean, no one's mentioned Anna, but like she's out there somewhere. We don't know, right? Where is she? And at the is end of the book, my favorite, one of my, yeah, is she working? Did she get to go to school? Like, what's happening? Where are they living? Are they living in the neighborhood that she dreaded moving to? Like, it's just, you kind of wonder, like, what's going on with that? And even, like, the class difference between their family where Rebecca can have a holiday-only dress that's very special. Mm-hmm and kind of have these new creature comforts and you just wonder like what Anna's family history is going to be but anyway my favorite scene or one of my favorite scenes is Max coming around the corner 
carrying a giant seltzer bottle to bring to the party. And I was like, the fact that Max <laughs> is the person who introduces seltzer to the American Girl franchise is iconic. It's beautiful. Yeah. It gives me life. I love it. It's like, Polar, please call us. Like, we're ready for the sponsorship. We're ready. But I love that he brings something that's 1,000% non-essential and just fun to the party. And it's like, wow. I mean, you know, he gives me life. I love him. I love the twins. I think they give me life. I like that they're kind of like a lot, but they're also doing a nice thing in this book. Yeah. Yeah, that they really do show Rebecca some kindness and the fact that the characters don't stay static book to book. Like we've only moved forward a pretty small amount of time also appreciated uh the kind of interesting author's note at the end of this that she chose to kind of like fudge the actual um lining up of this timeline so that she could heighten some tension by having hanukkah start on what would have been a school day when that wouldn't have exactly happened in 1914 there's just so many elements of this that feel extremely well thought out Mm -hmm. and i think like in the long run obviously i love molly that's not even a question situating these in specific years on a tight timeline and also having you know a hyper awareness about a real place I think is so important and I'm not Mm -hmm. trying to shade that like you know Molly and Kirsten are not from actual places you can find on a map but to me it does really make a difference and it makes someone like a Mr. Rossi or the teacher feel a lot more real I'm a lot more grounded in this story and the kind of density of a place like the Lower East Side than feeling like, wait, where is Molly from again? Okay, that was made up. There was no reason for it to be made up for 1944. Yeah, that that is an interesting move. Unless Val Tripp is sort of a variation of Mariah Carey, who iconically doesn't acknowledge time and she just doesn't acknowledge no. geography. Or maps. Like maybe yeah. Val's like, I'll give you time, but geography, no. Bridge too far, no. not doing it. And knowing that this author experienced something so similar in her childhood, literally about 40 years later, it's a reminder, right, that like these kinds of ideas don't go away. And the way that like we've had so many conversations as a country over these past few years about like keeping the Christ in Christmas, that's something I see on bumper stickers all the time. There's sort of like that discourse on the one hand and then really like getting to live through Rebecca and experience I did not have as a child, which is, you know, and and maybe many other readers didn't have as a child, which would be, what would it be like to be told that something you know is an actual religious holiday is just a national holiday? And you have to just like accept that as a fact when you know enough to be able to question it. Mm-hmm. And then kind of having to do as a student who like loved to learn and loved their teachers, like that questioning that starts to happen of like, well, what else might Miss Maloney also be wrong about? Mm. Like she sees through Ooh. it that it's not just a national holiday, but like that's true on some level, but clearly there is more to this. I, I thought that was really smart. Well, and it's also like you see her having a child-like understanding of times in class when she wanted to ask another question to Miss Maloney or speak out, and she stops herself because she kind of reads the moment and is like, this isn't going to go well. But kind of understanding, like, sometimes even when you're right doesn't mean that's what's going to, like, change the situation. Like, sometimes you have to sit with things that are wrong or that don't make sense and for reasons way outside of your control, and it's not fair. 
No, and I love that this author like took a piece of her own story and kind of like brought it to a new generation. She also has written a children's book about Hanukkah and she's a pretty prolific writer. So like there's, you know, all different ways that you can kind of like access that story. But it made me kind of excited to think about like where we're going next with Rebecca and to kind of consider like, okay, where else are we going to go with her? Because I enjoy being on the ride with her. You know, that's like not always exactly the case, but like when we were kind of deep in yellow fever, I was nervous. Now I'm enjoying the prospect of what else we might get to experience from her point of view. Yeah, I think I really like kind of seeing her whole world and and also her as an individual character. She's really interesting. Like I like that we get her interior life, which in a lot of books we haven't. Other books in the series are in American Girl. So yeah, I mean, I just, I feel like, as you said before, like, I feel like I know her family at this point. Like, they're such well-rounded characters that mm-hmm. to see them in all these different situations just is really interesting and, and really sweet. Yeah, The Peak in the Past is also, I think, a great kind of primer because it doesn't assume a ton of knowledge about Hanukkah, just, you know, basic story-wise, and it kind of gives you that introduction if you need it. And then, again, it gets into kind of like different manifestations of ways that people might celebrate in a way that's like pretty, pretty helpful. Um, So you didn't have to come in with like a ton of knowledge to do that. Um, I know that we're going to the movies next with her, which I'm like pretty excited about because I think it means more Max and I want to believe Uncle Guard. I mean, we would love that. I would love that for everybody involved. But my favorite line in this um, peek into the past is, in Rebecca's time, shopkeepers encouraged people to give lots of gifts on Hanukkah and Christmas, just as they do now, because more gifts meant more shoppers in their stores. And it's like, doctor, heal thyself with this appearing in an American Girl (laughs) book. Like, as if they're dispassionately being like, isn't it crazy how some department stores do this and encourage people to give more gifts for Christmas? And it's like, have you seen your own catalog, girl? Like... They're like, would you believe you that even we fathom? do special, they're like, we, not actually not us, sorry, other people do special campaigns to get people to purchase things at certain times of year. They're like, would crazy. you believe it? Absolutely crazy. And in some ways it kind of is contrary to the thrust of the whole rest of the book, which is that like, these are not different versions of the same thing. They are super specific religious traditions that belong to two separate like sets of faith groups. And in the back, they're like, but you know, when you're at a Macy's, it's kind of all the same. It's like, actually it's not. You know what unites us all and it's not love of country, it's love of buying things. Isn't that crazy? Yes. They're like, would it surprise you to know that you can purchase an entire additional set of things to go along with your interest in that? And I will say there are some really uh, great creators out there, uh, such as Rebecca Rubin, who have put content out to show you like different ways to respectfully celebrate and do different kinds of like bake-alongs with the Rebecca content. So we'll be sure to link to some of that because I think part of what is significant about the Rebecca Rubin doll line is when you are purchasing these things or you're kind of like partaking in this world, these aren't just accessories, right? They're part of a faith group tradition and they are not just like something to acquire, but they have real meaning. I like in the back of the book where they show the menorah that actually has like the Statues of Liberty and it says, you know, like people have made different interpretations and like combine different elements of their lives. But 
these are also objects that like have a specific meaning to a group of people, right? Mm. They are not just things to acquire from a catalog. So I do see kind of a, a change from the products that were aimed at us in the early to mid 90s to by the time of Rebecca, there being more awareness, not a perfect awareness that these are not just things. They're not just things to acquire. They have a meaning. Yeah. I mean, it is nice to see how that has at least changed somewhat. I don't I don't have um, anything like connected to this particular Rebecca storyline, but I do know that they also changed like how Rebecca was presented from the first Rebecca to the Rebecca that you're able to acquire now outfits. So hmm. from like the meat outfit to focusing more on this purple dress being kind of her standard garb, the school slash Hanukkah attire, like that's what the Rebecca I have came in. Is there a reason for that change? I think like a lot of things, I mean, Caroline was sort of like out the door and in the vault just like far too quickly. Mm. I'm not sure exactly why they would do that other than drumming up interest in a specific kind of outfit, right? Like just kind of this notion of like changing what they come in, which kind of makes it all the more fascinating that Molly's recent reboot, she's wearing the exact outfit she debuted in in 1986. Mm. Sometimes it feels like there's no rhyme or reason other than just like people seemingly responding to certain kinds of things wow hmm that's really odd but also kind of interesting hmm yeah i can't wait to go to the movies with her like do you think she'll let us have some popcorn i mean if i was her i wouldn't i'm not a sharer in terms of popcorn (laughs) so i would respect that but you know i'm excited to kind of see like can we get a walk-on role can we like what's happening I don't know that she's in the film. I think she's going to the movies. Oh, I see. I thought we were, like, going to get our SAG card. Like, I was getting really excited. But I guess I got my hopes up too high. I think with Vera, like, if Vera wants to kind of join us on our team, I feel like Vera could be, like, minutes away from a merch and movie deal. I mean, I'm rooting for her. Like, I will be her manager if she needs one. I have no experience, (laughs) but I have the enthusiasm. Um, I'll be like, I've watched now. I'm up to date on the Kardashians, so I'll kind of channel my under Chris, and I'll take my 10%, and I'll be your biggest fan. I love it. I think that's perfect. So, Allison, if somebody wants to workshop another parody with you, where might they find you? You should absolutely feel free to reach out to me with any and all parody ideas, specifically anything Rebecca Black related, at Allison Horrocks. Uh, Mary, if people want to talk to you about Mariah Carey, especially as we head into cancer and Leo season, where should they find you? I mean, please. That's Anytime. one of my favorite topics. <laughs> so please find me on Instagram at Mimi Mahoney or Twitter at Mary Mahoney123. And I'll just say this to put in a pitch for our Patreon. We have some truly exciting stuff coming up. So if you're listening to this on Monday, just know Tuesday, the 28th, we will be doing a group watch of Dick starring Kirsten Dunst, who may or may not have, you know, been the signal person or who I'm giving credit to for, you know, taking Watergate down. I don't know. I've never seen this movie before. I have no idea what we're going to watch, but we're doing that. We're doing a Wikipedia edit-a-thon as a group sometime early in July. Forget the date right now. We're going to watch 1776. That's going to be our July episode. Allison, I can't remember what else we're doing, but it's a lot of exciting stuff happening. We have a lot of really great things planned for the rest of the year. And 
we have, um, you know, kind of an interesting summer lineup. I feel like summer is really fun for us because we get to experiment a little bit. So be on the lookout for different kinds of crafts as well as the watch alongs. Um, we love when you join our Patreon and you engage in our Discord community. We have a book club on there. So just anything you want to do to kind of interact. We have a fantastic uh, mini American Girl doll scene where people take those dolls everywhere. Um, earlier today, my Josefina was at my place of work hugging onto a bottle of hand sanitizer for dear life. I don't control her. Wow. I don't control her. I don't tell her what to do. My mini Molly lives in my office next to a sign that says, welcome to our chaos. I don't control what they do, but they don't receive part of my paycheck yet. So like if that kind of energy is attractive to you, that's where we are. Interesting. Well, yeah, yeah, lots going on, a lot of different channels for convos and things like that. So please check us out there. And thanks to everyone who's already supporting us there. And to everyone who listens to the show, we really support you. Know, if, I think if there's wider interest in the Wikipedia Editathon, we can also share the dashboard with everybody to join us in Absolutely. that event. So we can do that as Absolutely. well. Um, so thanks very much. You can hear Ray purring in the background. Um, yes, he hey, approves. He's actually part of the Patreon. He is. He's part of the Patreon. I love that. Um, so thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you on our next episode.